Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Mark Brooks, Managing Director at Permanent Equity. Mark leads Permanent Equity's post-close operations team, partnering with company leaders to overcome challenges and unlock growth. Mark is a really reflective person, which you can tell from his writing on Twitter. He's thought very deeply on management and creating transformative teams, and this conversation is dense with value and insights. This episode is a fantastic dive on all things management, including brevity and effective communication, creating an environment that encourages debate and disagreement, and why great teams are crucial to combat process depreciation. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with the Q&A with August Felker from Oberly Risk Strategies. Are there any new developments for small business insurance? So the biggest thing we've seen just in the last couple months is on the reps and warranty insurance side. So typically, and we've talked about this before, but if it's if you're doing a larger deal, and, and I would say, let's let's just say it's like $20 million in enterprise value and up, reps and warranty insurance is, is quite common now. But if the enterprise value is below that, reps and warranties doesn't hasn't made sense. And what what's what I find pretty interesting is is a, a couple of people have come out with a new reps and warranty insurance offering for deals under twenty million, and this just came out this year, and it's getting a lot of traction. It's still kind of a new product. It's not nearly as expensive as as sort of the the more traditional reps and warranty, but what it will do is it will allow the seller to well they might not have to have as much of an escrow or hold back for a smaller deal because you have a reps and warranty policy in place and it 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 can give them that extra comfort and give you that extra comfort too so it's it's something that's really interesting and i think it's going to grow it's been really asked we we get a lot of questions on our our transactions under 20 million enterprise value hey can you do reps and warranty insurance and and now there there's there's starting to be a solution which is which is pretty cool that's pretty cool thanks august to learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker and oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood & Strong for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think a fun place to start would be something we were just discussing, which is the focus of writing or brevity in particular, like writing briefly and Axios today was just announced has just announced selling to Cox Enterprises for half a billion dollars. And there's some talk that the CEO, one of the co-founders, had given talking about how important brevity was and that he was describing writing this big story on the president and tons of people were reading it, but it was one of those days where each of the page you had to flip to the next page. You had to like click next page, almost like a slideshow. And he's found that almost nobody even went to the second page. And he very quickly found out he had to be very brief in his writing and we were just talking about that in terms of Twitter, but I imagine brevity applies all over the place beyond just you know public writing, but also internal writing, communications with management teams or employees or hiring strategy. Like, there's tons of value in brevity. I'd love to hear kind of what's been your thinking on brevity within and internally in a company. Yeah, sure. 
we were talking earlier about Twitter and the forcing function that it has for you to, to clarify what it is, what it is you're thinking. And I started, I haven't been that prolific in earlier years, but I started in the 140 character days when it was actually a, a real challenge to put together, you know, a legitimate thought in, in 140 characters, especially one with any sort of depth to it. So 280 characters now feels like a total luxury. I don't really write on any other platforms. I think because I miss, I miss the fortune, forcing function and I really need it to, as a discipline, to clarify what it is I'm, I'm actually trying to say. So I often start with something that's way beyond the 280 character limit and just keep editing down, editing down, editing down. You know, something I learned from Morgan Housel years ago is that, you know, that editing process is really kind of distilling what it is that you want to say to people. And so to your question about the importance of it internally, I probably, as a manager, I spend more time editing emails than maybe anyone else I know. And I think the reason is those emails, those recorded conversations with the folks on your team, in some sense, become kind of the backbone of what people believe about what you're saying or believe about your, your company. And you know, we talked also earlier about how content that you produce, whether it's for a broader network or for, for internally, kind of becomes the constitution of who you are as an organization. I may be overthinking it and I'm I'm open to I'm open to hearing that from people but I think it's really important to be careful with the words that you that you say to people and brevity is a big part of that. The more you go on bloviating about a certain point in an email or a slack or something like that, the message gets muddled and so you know as few words as possible where you can still capture the concept that you're trying to communicate to people is a great skill. And you can tell a big difference between a writer who knows how to be brief and a writer who doesn't. And there's definitely a place in prose and in fiction for that sort of writing. Like that's those are books and articles and essays that really capture us. In business, I find that brevity is it tends to be more powerful. And so that forcing function of, of sitting down and thinking through, okay, how do I want to say this? And even bouncing it off a couple folks who are going to be recipients of the email before you send it out. I mean, I really feel like I obsess over internal communication and I think it pays off because I do think those communications are extremely powerful. People can save them literally for forever. And so the way that you, the way that you communicate those things, especially around key lifetime moments inside the business. So uh, something bad has happened, something great has happened. You feel like a new policy needs to be rolled out. The way that you talk about that with people they're going to remember clips and phrases of what you say literally for forever. And especially in those key cathartic moments in, in the life of a business, those things are going to be impermeably etched on people's brains. And so being extremely careful about the things that you say and the brevity with which you say them, which again, crystallizes the core of what you're trying to communicate is, is really powerful. And to make the point, I just spoke way too long on the point of brevity, <laughs> but, but that's what you're going to get from me in audio instead of, instead of writing. I think that's the other, the other crazy thing. I talk way too much as a person. And so the way that I express myself in writing is kind of the antithesis of how I express myself in talking. I do a lot of reiterating and, and that sort of thing. And so I have this dual personality between who I am in person and in conversation and who I am as a writer. Do you have a Slack channel just devoted to email drafts? And you're like, hey, what do you guys think of this? And like pasting the email 
and then everyone, let everyone else pace there and share Topically, thoughts. Yes, definitely. I mean, we we manage twelve different businesses now, plus the the firm itself is is a thirteenth. So inside each of those channels, we have lots of conversation about broader, especially those broader communications, things that are going to more more than three to five people. We do lots of workshopping inside of Slack. And when you when you think of writing key messages, or we'll take an email as an example, and we, maybe we can take it as a management perspective, like how would you coach CEOs or COOs who are working for you or working one of your companies? How do you coach communicating through emails in terms of brevity and word choice and appropriate length and phrasing and all, all these other things? Yeah, I think I do more coaching around empathy than than anything. I, what I don't want to do is force my style on on other people. So if a CEO is putting something out and I've edited it to be 50% shorter than it would have been if it came in their voice, employees are going to be able to tell. So I don't I try really hard not to tamper with voice or with length when folks are running something by me, but what I will give feedback on is is empathy. Either over empathizing with a certain set of stakeholders that are receiving the communication or underrepresentation of of another set of stakeholders. And it's more difficult for folks who haven't sat in the shoes of the recipients of the email, right? So you bring someone in as a more experienced manager who's never had a blue collar job or never worked in a restaurant, you know, that that sort of a thing. Like that's a challenge to be able to speak to that to that level. So that's where I tend to weigh in more on is, hey, are you considering this audience or someone who is living paycheck to paycheck? How are they going to read read this email? Or you're speaking really well to the paycheck to paycheck folks. How is your management team going to read this? So it's a difficult balance. And sometimes you do have to be a little bit more verbose to make sure that you're checking all the boxes in terms of the stakeholders that you're messaging. But I would say that's where I put most of my emphasis is making sure that you're being empathetic and considering whose shoes am I speaking to in this message. One thing we're also talking about in terms of content as well was how are you sharing ideas across companies? And part of, we talked about kind of Notion and some of the other tools that are used in doing that, but how does just kind of continuing this thread of communication and brevity to some extent, like how do you share ideas and get information across companies to each other? That seems like it would be exponentially more difficult challenge over time as you grow and add companies. But what are some ways that you've solved some of that? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say that we've solved any of it, but I can talk to you about how we're trying to solve it. <laughs> we, I mean, we, we do use Slack a good bit, which for real-time conversation is great. We also have a pretty strong bias to in-person work. So there's a, there are a lot of serendipitous conversations that happen you know, we have a room that all the ops, you know, the post-close ops team sits in. So we do have lots of just over-the-shoulder chit-chat that uh, where things get shared. But I would say Slack is the next level of that where, hey, we need to kind of, we need to write this down to make sure that we don't forget it. And then Notion is where we really want to crystallize things for the long term. So what is the strategic decision that we made about this business's product portfolio? Or why did we choose to hire this candidate to head up marketing versus this other candidate? You know, and sharing our notes there. I think the the reason being we have such a long time horizon at permanent equity that none of us realistically, so I'm in my, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. And I would love to think that I'm still doing this when I'm 75 at the end of our, you know, at the end of our latest fund. But that's that's a really long time to think about, right? So we almost we come to these conversations with a with a bias towards 
needing to document things for whoever the next generation is that picks up the mantle of, of permanent equity. I mean, we want to be doing this generationally. And so those key, you know, we talked about inflection points earlier in terms of communication, those also need to be crystallized in, in some sense of this is the decision that we made. Why did we make that decision? So, I mean, the first, the first item on each of our businesses notion pages is the investment memo. So the thing that we shared internally on why we loved this business and why we wanted to partner with them for the next 30 years is the first thing because it is, you know, it serves as sort of that, that constitution of this is why we love this business. And it's great, especially for businesses that we've owned for a few years to go back and remember, oh yes, this is the unique genius of their business proposition and to re-engage with that. And it is reinvigorating to kind of go back like a stock investor going back and reading their their journal when they're trying to make a decision. That's what Notion really serves as, is our kind of real-time journal of why did we make these core decisions and going back and revisiting them frequently is a, a healthy practice, but also one that can be exciting and reinvigorating. And the purpose of brevity, there's a another topic kind of intangential to this that I want to dive into, which is concept you've written about recently, which is owner reliance within businesses. So a company that's over-reliant or on a business owner, but ideally over time should be, there should be some more separation from that owner in terms of you know, the ability to like, transfer the business to other folks. But the article you wrote recently, The Kingdom or the Crown was written kind of with the perspective of talking towards owners of businesses who might be looking to sell one day, but I can't imagine that that process of transferability stops once they become a permanent equity company. There still has to be value in being less owner dependent or CEO dependent or operator or whatever within permanent equity. How do you kind of continue that philosophy of making sure your companies aren't still reliant on one person? Yeah, I think growth is a forcing function on that. So there's you can be the the founder and progenitor of a, of a business. And that's fantastic. You can also very quickly become a lid on the business. And that's, that's kind of how we talk about new partner companies that we're coming in to work with is what are the, are there lids on the business that we can be, that we can be helpful with? And owner reliance is one of those lids. And it's not, it's never because the founder isn't smart enough or isn't willing to devote enough time or anything like that. It's really has to do with there are, as you grow as a business, you know, even if the business is growing linearly, the amount of decisions that need to be made is growing exponentially. So underneath, you know, a linear growth trajectory, once you get beyond a certain point, there's really an exponential growth in terms of number of decisions. And it gets to a point where those decisions get blocked if there's one person that has to be making all of those decisions. So we think a lot about decision rights and how those are structured. And we talk, you know, we have very clear conversations when we're starting up a partnership with a business owner of, you know, who gets to decide things when, and, you know, our preference is to put as much as possible in terms of decision rights on the business and really only weigh in at, you know, at key points. So like, hey, every OPEX or, you know, every CAPEX decision under $250,000, you get to continue to make. We only need to be consulted over this particular level. So we think a lot about decision rights. And I think growth has a forcing function of pushing those decision rights down into the business, which means that you're hiring. Uh, it's a forcing function for your hiring. You have to be 
be better and better at hiring because the level of trust that you have to have with the second layer of the business and the third layer of the business has to increase because you're delegating. I mean, really, you're ideally two to three levels down delegating decisions that the CEO is literally making a few months ago, right? So there's, I wouldn't say that we have a really honed discipline around this, but I think that growth itself forces you to make those decisions about where decisions are, are being made and pushing those down in the, in the organization. Brent asked me earlier, uh, we were having a conversation for a, a different podcast, and he said, you know, what's the advice that you would give an owner who's two, three, maybe five years out from thinking about taking on partnership in their business or selling their business? And that was the advice I, I gave is, you know, I cited the Kingdom and the Crown article, which, by the way, I was not the primary writer on in any way, shape or form. Everything's a team effort here, but I think it, it turned out fantastic. And that's the main advice I would give as we look at from both from an investing standpoint and from an operational post-close operations standpoint, that owner reliance is a huge piece for us. And if someone has demonstrated that they're willing to be more open-handed with the decision-making structure at their business, that's a huge plus for us as we approach a potential investment. Is there some long-term goal for, in terms of like the list of decisions that an operator should be responsible for as the company grows, like 10 years out, you should only be thinking about these key types of decisions, or at least on any other topic, you're making this high level of decision. I, I think of like the, have you seen margin call where there's the, yes. the, the meeting in New York and the, the, the CEO of the bank is saying, you know, treat me like a, or talk to me like a five-year-old, like, a, or a golden retriever, perhaps. Yes. And like, that's, it's not brains <laughs> that got me here. Like I'm at, he's making very different decisions than any of the other characters in that you know conference room are. So like, what do you think of as the long-term North Star for kind of the key decisions an operator should eventually only be making for their business? Right. I would say that it's not super well-defined for us. We tend to stay away from like 90-day plans, two to three-year plans, that, that sort of a thing. And that's a that's another concept that's part of our you know constitution or our foundations that we're talking about is a concept of growth without goals. So we want to we want to be encouraging good day to day decisions, but not because we've got some artificial three year time horizon that we're that we're trying to meet. I would say, generally speaking, though, off the cuff, founders should only be involved in day to day decision making on the company if they have a very particular expertise that's industry specific, product specific, customer specific. And even then that should be kind of a, a warning sign, you know, in the back of their head of, okay, I need to teach someone else how to do this. So ideally, you know, if, if we're thinking categorically about the types of decisions they should be making, if people are coming to them with decisions on, you know, how do we make this decision with this customer or how do we make this decision on, you know, on this product, things that are required for day-to-day -day operations of the business, that should be that should be a warning sign. And then maybe you can think about it as time horizon specific. So if people are coming to you with ideas on how the what the business needs to do week to week, then that's the next that's the next target for you to relinquish month to month after that. And then, you know, ideally at that CEO founder level, you're thinking in terms of quarters and years more so than, you know, what do we need to do to keep the doors open for tomorrow? There's almost like a, I would never accuse a CEO of any, any CEO I know of laziness, but there's almost like a little bit of laziness that's healthy where like, I really don't want to do this or I shouldn't be doing this. Someone else needs to be doing this. I'd, 
I want to spend my time doing other stuff. Like, how have we, how have you seen kind of some of that manifest in your companies or in just companies you talk to? I think it's a big challenge because of the personality type and the drive and the grit that it takes to found a company. Like, I could never do it. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people that have done that and have pulled it off. That same drive and grit, I have, I have observed, makes it hard to let go of those things, right? Because you, so let me, let me segue just, just for a minute. So all of us, I think all of us struggle with this because from the day that we are born, we are measured based on our individual performance, right? That is the way we're measured. Like even group projects in middle school and high school, we all know our, our BS. It's based on, you know, what your individual capability is and usually the person that's leading the project, right? So we're, and we're measured like that in, you know, middle school, high school, college, if we go to college, you know, graduate school, same deal if you have the opportunity to do that. And then usually your first few jobs in the workforce are not management jobs either, right? So you have built at this point a 25 to 30 year ingrained mentality around I am measured on my personal output and my personal performance. So this is one of the things that if you're a founder trying to transition decision rights, or if you're just a person who's moving from an individual contributor role to a people manager role, this transition, doing it well, is really, really difficult because your whole economy on how you measure your personal value has to flip on its head, right? You've thought about, this is the best way to do it and I'm going to do it. This is the best way to do this, I'm going to do this, to an economy that is, this is the goal that we need to accomplish and I need to care less about how we get there at the beginning. I can give feedback on process, but my guidance to people needs to be strong in terms of what I want the outcome to be and less strong in terms of the process to get there, which is completely antithetical to everything that we've been given feedback on, you know, for those first 25 to 30 years of life, right? So take that and then put it on a massive amount of steroids for a founder of a company who has built something on the back of their, their grit, their ingenuity, their capability. And so it's a very rare breed for, to find founders who have been letting go of those things. And especially who have the gut instinct to let go and say, this company is more valuable, the less and less I am a part of day-to-day decisions, right? Because that wasn't how the business started. And that wasn't how the business started to, to grow. And that wasn't how the business continued to grow. But now at a certain point, when it gets to a certain size, you have to start relinquishing those those decision those decision rights, and that's that's really tough. Again, because you've lived your entire life, and you've your business has lived its entire life with you being in your personal performance being an integral part of the overall success. Sorry, it's a long tangent, but I have strong feelings on this. <laughs> no, that, that's that's great. That's that's what I want to hear. One thing you you said a while ago was the pinnacle of being a great manager, seeing your team accomplish something great and knowing you had nothing to do with it. I would love to kind of hear more of when for owners or operators, managers who have made that transition from, you know, individual contributor to manager of a team, at what point or like what helps them the most kind of nudge that thought along where actually my, you know, my performance now isn't what I can do, but what I can like encourage and help others around me? What nudges folks in that direction the most effectively? Right. 
Well, the most effectively, I think, is the most unfortunate, and it's usually stress, right? Or burnout or something like that. Like when, when folks have been holding on too tightly to things that they really shouldn't be dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis, it just, it gets to be too much. And yeah, you know, they'll, they'll have a react, a, you know, negative reaction to it. You know, fortunately, some people catch it early enough and start to start to offload things. But, you know, a lot of folks who start small to medium-sized businesses haven't done the management thing before, especially at a larger, at a larger company, right? So it's a very big mind shift for them. I think for us, it's finding things that are unthreatening and asking them to give up those things. So the things that feel less core to who the business is are things that we want them to start offloading first anyway. And a way that we can encourage you know, operators to do that is, is at the end of each conversation, thinking to themselves first, was I needed in this conversation? And then the second step is saying out loud to the person they've had the conversation with, did you need me to make this decision? Like, do you really need my input on this or did you already know what to do? Or a more, uh, maybe a kinder way to ask that question is, how was I helpful to you in this conversation? And then that can start to identify like very specific transition points for, well, I didn't really understand the interplay between this customer and this supplier, or I didn't really know the history of, you know, this product line or something like that. And that can identify, you know, very specific points for the owner of, okay, I need to do a better job of giving people the history of this relationship or talking them through my thought process of why we started this product line or this service line, that, that sort of thing. So asking that question of, was I necessary to this conversation? And then asking that question to the broader room, like, how was I helpful to this? Because I really want you, I really want you all to start making conversation or decisions like this without me. And, you know, that's, I have heard more than once from CEOs and founders that the aha moment for them on this is walking by a conference room and seeing people in the conference room having a, what is clearly a good discussion about something and having no idea what it is. Like that's the, you know, you walk by and you kind of kind of see in the window or if it's you know, a glass in conference room, it's like, huh, so-and-so and so-and-so are in there. I wonder what they're talking about. And then it's, it's like this aha moment. It's like, oh, they had an idea or they identified a challenge between their departments or whatever their areas of ownership are. And they decided to get in a room and solve it without me. And that's like understanding that that's a beautiful thing for the growth of the business. That's, that tends to be like a big aha moment for folks. So for the CEOs that handle that really well or manage to build teams around them that make decisions and that they are less and less a part of over time, what are some common character traits for those CEOs and managers? The ones who are, who are exceptional at it have this amazing combination of a very accomplished career or just this thing that they have built literally uh, de novo <laughs> and but also this humility about their participation in the process so there's probably uh, just talking it out loud there's probably a very high correlation between people who are good at delegating things and people who credit luck or providence with their success, or at least with a part of their success. So people who have people who approach things with a with a pride, but also with the humility about their involvement in the process, the people who are most convinced that they have been the reason for the success of their of their business and aren't 
quick to credit other people with their contributions to, you know, to the growth of the enterprise. Those are the ones that have the hardest problem. So I think it is the biggest correlation from a character trait perspective is humility or people who approach things with more, more open hands of, Hey, I'm really, I'm really fortunate to have gotten to participate. And, you know, we caught this market at the right time and we just had some great people on staff. Those are the people who are more likely to delegate and the folks who are, boy, I'm really glad I came along or this never would have happened. Those are the folks that have the, <laughs> the hardest time delegating. So kind of building on this topic further, there are folks who found businesses and build a team around them to kind of delegate as the company grows. But there's a similar kind of path where companies will hire a team and delegate to do those tasks better and to get into a growth mindset. And you tweeted something about building a team for space and for stress. And I think this ties in really well to that. Can you kind of walk through that concept and how it relates to these two kind of different paths of team building? Yeah, I tweeted something earlier about the real real innovations come out of either space or pressure, I think is the is the way I put it. So space is those folks who have time to walk in the woods and think about the next the next iteration of their of their business and what that and what that might be or stress being there's some exogenous force that comes in and forces your hand to think about what the next iteration of your business is so a key employee leaves or there's a global pandemic there's a massive disruption to the supply chain so either space or stress can really drive your thinking around innovation of what the next iteration of your business looks like and let me rabbit trail real quick on that. That's important. And I think, I think Bezos really popularized this idea of, uh, I think he calls it like third wave thinking or, or something like that, where you need to be thinking about how to disrupt your own business because someone else is going to do it if you don't. And so that level of thinking about your business, I believe comes from space or stress. Now, the delegation part comes in when in two different ways. So in order for you to have space to think about those sorts of things, you can't be involved in day-to-day decision-making for your business because you're going to be, your thoughts are going to be crowded out by your to-do list and, you know, by how you're blocking other people in the organization with decisions you need to make, your, you know, overly full inbox, you know, that, that sort of a thing. So on the space side, you need a good team with delegated decision-making so that you have the mental capacity and the space to go out and, and think about what that next iteration is. On the stress side, those are it's basically impossible to build a stress-free business, right? And people probably could have argued about, about that before COVID, <laughs> but I now, I now think everyone would agree, there's no such thing as a stress-free business. Your business is going to go through you know, brutal cycles. They're gonna go through downturns. They're gonna be hit by global pandemics, key employees leaving, that, that sort of a thing. And then you need a team around you because being a CEO or a leader or an operator of some way is, is already extremely lonely. And when you have a huge source of stress like that, it gets even lonelier. So having a trusted team around you where you are not the only shoulders that the business is resting on is a huge relief. So helping you bear that weight, but also helping you think about okay, what are the key decisions that we need to make on this? So having them shoulder some of that burden, both in terms of taking day-to-day decisions off that that same function, you know, on the space side happens on the stress side also, so that you can think clearly about how to operate in the heat of battle. 
And for when you're looking at hiring a position or hiring a, a CEO, an operator to come run one of your businesses, how do you evaluate their ability to build teams that allow them space and stress? So I think, I think a lot of that comes from whether or not they have worked with the same people in multiple places. So this isn't, it isn't a perfect diagnostic because not everyone has the, the ability to do that. But if operators have stories of, hey, I worked with so-and-so, I hired them to be the director of marketing at this firm, and then I hired them again to be the VP of marketing at this next firm, the fact that someone in a position of decision-making authority like that wanted to work with that person again is a huge affirmation for us and something that we look for. So folks that have cohorts of people that they've carried, especially if they've done it across industries, across companies, that's a very strong tell for us that that person is willing to delegate decision-making authority and that they're just generally a, a decent person to, to work with because you can't hire people into leadership positions and not give them decision-making authority and have them be excited about working with you again, right? So the fact that you know, if people have a cohort or maybe even just one or two people that they've worked with in, in multiple instances, that's a key thing for us. And we, we love to look at references also when, when folks are able to provide them and ask, you know, especially if we can talk to them and ask questions about, you know, how are they to work with as a, as a person is, you know, most often just as important as their business acumen. And kind of within that, there's, Another concept of that's kind of like similar to to parents in that, you know, you want to be better than your parents did. Like you want to do things better in certain ways or continue good things that your parents did. And it seems kind of similar with with bosses or managers. Like we want to emulate great bosses and avoid behaviors of bad ones. But with each role, like your each company or team is going to be different. There's going to be different behaviors that work better with this team. Like when you bring in new managers, what are some, are there any really common behaviors or patterns that need to be adjusted for certain companies, either because they're just larger or they work in different industries? Like what past behaviors that they're ad, they're optimizing for do you often have to adjust or shift around a little bit? I would say that the two things that we, that we focus on a great deal are people and problem solving. So if someone comes in and we're interested in having a conversation with them for a leadership role at any of our businesses, if they don't have a people orientation, we're not interested. You know, people who talk about headcount more than they talk about individual names, like that's problematic for us. Like we, you know, we see businesses as collections of human beings who have distinct gifts and a big part of our job is to apply those gifts to to solving problems inside the inside the business, right? And so problem solving is the is the second one. And if someone, it's great if someone has big numbers, you know, of growth that they've driven in businesses before. But we're interested a lot in how people triage things. So how do you think about the way that you prioritize, you know, one thing over the other? And it's a lot of it is like very relational, interviewing driven. So you know, tell us about a time where you were forced with two really bad choices and how did you choose you know, one or the other? So that people being able, to, being able to solve problems and able to tell us stories about 
how they were additive to the process of, of solving those problems is a big one. And then people orientation is the, the second. We don't want people, we're not interested in people who run businesses through spreadsheets. It's great for them to understand spreadsheets and to be able to identify leverage points in the business model by looking at financials, that's awesome. But if they're not running the business through their people, then that's a that's a red flag. There's another concept that you've brought up before, which is the depreciation of processes and that over time, a process almost in any part of the business will eventually break down and as the company grows. Do you think that the concept you just brought up kind of reminds me of that a little bit where perhaps managers who are really good at listening to their team and building great teams can overcome depreciation of processes. Has that been your experience or is that a specific kind of discipline that they need to hone? I think there's a huge amount of overlap between people who are good delegators and organizations that are good at getting rid of bad process. And the reason for that is there's the classic Toyota example of the red cord, right? Giving everyone the power of the red cord all the way down to the, you know, the early hourly worker. Like the hourly worker can shut down the process if they see a quality problem on the Toyota line. And so there's this level of empowerment that comes with folks who are good delegators that I think defeats bad process proactively because you're giving people the right to ask why. Like, why on earth am I doing this? And you can tell, you can tell the organizations that haven't delegated any decision-making authority to their frontline folks because you will know bad process as a customer and know that the person on the phone with you or talking to you from the other side of the counter is completely powerless to go around it or, or to change it or to even suggest change to it, right? So we have, I think as customers of businesses, we have this like inherent twitch about bad process. Like we know it when we see it as a customer of a service or a product. And then we don't really think about implementing that in the organizations that we're part of. The only way that those things get nipped is when the people at the very front of your organization, the customer facing part of your organization have the power to say, this does not make sense to me and it does not make sense to our customers. And I think we should stop doing it. And to get back to your question, the operators who have a bent for delegating decision-making authority are going to be the ones who not, it's not them. It's not themselves who's doing it. They are delegating the authority to go sniff out bad process. And that's, what's hugely valuable. And those are the businesses that stay lean and efficient over time is the ones who have completely empowered employees to say, this is stupid. I don't think we should do it anymore. And the ones that are most empowered to say, this is stupid. I'm not doing it anymore. Like those are the, those are the best. (laughs) How do you create a company that allows that to happen where anyone in the company could stand up and disagree with their manager or, or CEO to their face and say like, your idea or your process sucks or is getting in the way? Or like, how do you create an environment where that's you know safe and encouraged and productive? So I think, yeah, the I think for it to be productive, it has to be respectful. So I was I gave gave kind of an over-the-top example there. So apologies if I created any confusion. But I think one of the things that we have had to learn painfully over time is that there are a lot of the processes that are built into the organizations that we get to partner with have a great purpose. We're just not smart enough yet to understand it. So making sure that you take the time to understand the processes that are already there that may, on the surface, look inefficient 
maybe they're for really good reasons. Maybe they're OSHA reasons or, you know, uh, some other sort of regulation. Maybe it's because, you know, the company had a footfall in the past with a customer. And so they put some process in place to make sure no one crosses that, that line anymore. So I think, you know, there has to be a level of respect for, you know, if your first thought is maybe there's a good reason for this, but I'm having trouble seeing it, right? So there's a, there's on the folks who are offering the suggestion, making sure that you're cultivating a culture of respect for the folks that they're passing the feedback onto. And in the leadership level, going back to what we were talking about earlier, selecting for humility is really critical because if people aren't open to feedback, things are never going to get better. They're not going to get better. Their teams are not going to get better. You know, the product and service the business is offering is not going to get better. So making sure that there's receptivity on the leadership side, but that people are being polite and kind in the way that they're passing on the feedback is the way that it happens. So I don't think that there's like a process that's going to work well across a bunch of different companies. But I think culturally speaking, something that will work across businesses is being respectful in the way that you deliver feedback and making sure as a leader that you're open to receiving that feedback. And that's where you can really find find the stuff that you want to attack as a business. It'd almost be a good interview question for a, a potential manager. Like, tell me about a time where your idea or project got destroyed by your team. Like it turned out it was a disaster and was not going to be the right direction. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, one of the questions that you ask on the podcast, right, is tell me about a time where you've changed your mind about something deeply held. If someone can't answer that question, that's another red flag. Like we have to be, as leaders, we have to be constantly learning, constantly open to the idea that we might be wrong about something because otherwise we don't learn, right? You and I were talking earlier about most of the best ideas we have are because we've crashed and burned so many times doing the opposite, right? (laughs) So if we're not open to the fact that we might be crashing and burning on something, and a lot of times it's our, you know, our friends and our colleagues around us that are going to give us that feedback, we're just, we're never going to get better. How do you encourage that with yourself? How do you kind of like self-reflect a little bit and look at your processes or your ideas or things you hold dear and kind of, you know, try to cross them off, you know, on a somewhat regular basis? How do you kind of do that on just for you as a person? I don't have process for it, but I am, I feel like, I am old enough now or experienced enough now to recognize that when someone is giving me feedback about something and I am starting to get angry about it, that's when I need to, I, before anything comes out, even like a facial expression, you know, I need to time out and say, okay, okay, why am I, why am I reacting to this? Is there a sacred cow at play here that I'm not, that I'm not aware of, you know, in my head or in my heart? Like, what is it that I'm reacting to? So that's, that's a big one. And then the other is actually things that I get annoyed about in other people in terms of personality or process are usually things that I'm also doing. I didn't come up with this idea, but like the things that we detest most in other people are the things that we detest most about ourselves. So that's another thing that I think is a good key, you know, re-examination moment is when I'm getting annoyed about something someone is doing, it's probably because it's a part of myself that I don't like. And I need to direct the energy that I'm directing at that person back at myself, you know, and self-reflection and trying to fix whatever it is that I'm annoyed about with the, with the other person. So those are the two that I would say. Any good examples personally of things you don't like about yourself that drive you nuts when you see them in other people? Yes. 
procrastination makes me crazy in other people. And I'm also guilty of it. And I've had to try to build processes around it. I think a lot of it is, and I think personality tests are useful. They're not like the key to understanding everybody, but I'm a Myers-Briggs P. And so I like open-endedness rather than like closed decision-making. And so I will put off decisions until the last possible minute because I want to collect as much information as I can to make a great decision. But for the people that are downstream of that decision, it's probably maddening. And I know it's maddening because people who do it to me are maddening, right? So I'd say that's a key one is I, you know, when I get annoyed at other people's procrastination, I have to remind myself, okay, first of all, you do this all the time, so you need to chill out. And secondly, the the good reasons that I use to excuse myself for procrastination, I'm not being as generous with those other people about why they're why they're procrastinating. So I need to be as charitable with other people as I am with myself about those same foibles. One thing I'm curious about is if of the highest performing managers, CEOs that you've seen, are there any consistencies in daily routines or habits? Like they, you know, a lot of them wake up early or have workout routines or eat well or have make time for family or socialize or like what kind of routines have you seen, if any, that are consistent across high performing managers? I haven't really seen any, any routines necessarily. I think one of the hallmarks is people who have where business is their vocation and their avocation. So, you know, you got to, and I stole that phrase from my father-in-law who is a lawyer by vocation and a farmer by avocation. So, you know, he goes, he goes to work. He is the, he's the small town lawyer. And then at night he hops on his tractor and he, and he does things around the, the property. Right. I think some of the most dialed in business folks tend to work a lot, not necessarily at the expense of family or friends or health, but they do businessy sorts of things in their leisure time also because they love it. Like it's, I mean, it's probably one of the nerdiest hobbies ever, but like that's a commonality that I see that I see a lot is when I'm having conversations with some of the folks in our portfolio that I consider the best operators, it's often about business, not necessarily the business that they're operating, but it's like, Hey, did you read this article about this? And you know, you're talking about business models or pricing strategy or, you know, product portfolio or, or whatever it is. I think that's one of the hallmarks I see. So it's not really a, it's not really a, you know, a process that they follow or, or habits or anything, but more like a, a hallmark. And I don't know if it's developable or not, but like, I'm a business nerd. The people that I like working with the most are, are business nerds also. That's kind of a, a hallmark that I would say. But I, I know people who are, you know, over the top about their health. I know people who don't, who don't really care. I know people who have a lot of family and spend a lot of time with them. I have, you know, I know people who are, you know, are very happily single. I haven't really seen anything specific around habits like that, but just in terms of mindset, the people who geek out about business are the ones that tend to be happiest at work and willing to spend more time on it. That's fantastic. Kind of doubling back to a topic we were on earlier, what's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? So I hope it's okay that this isn't about business, but... Please, have, yeah. So I have four kids. And when my oldest was about to go to kindergarten, we had her registered for public school. And my wife came to me and said, Hey, what would you think about homeschooling? And I had a very deeply held belief that this was a terrible idea. Like we should absolutely not do this. 
And I think, to be honest, it was it was my own prejudice based on a very small sample size of homeschooled kids that I had interacted with throughout the years. And by the way, if any of you are watching, I didn't mean that it's not you that I'm talking about. It's the other ones. So, you know, I think I had I had preconceived notions about socialization and, you know, who's going to teach your kids about, you know, X, Y and Z, the the non book stuff. And so I had I had a very strongly held preconceived notion about this. She said to me, I hear you. Why don't you come to this seminar? It's a couple days down in Richmond. We'll, we'll go and we'll just listen to a few speakers. So I went, I tried to keep an open mind about what I was going to hear. And I heard a couple of pretty interesting talks. And then the type of homeschooling that she was interested in doing was made a lot of sense to me. And so, you know, I did some more reading on the, you know, on the particular type that she wanted to do. And by the end of the summer, I was like, all right, let's give this a shot. I wasn't completely bought in. I was like, we'll do a one-year experiment and see and see how it goes. And now I believe very strongly that it is the right decision for our family. It's definitely not the right decision for everybody. And I think that's a important thing is to hold hold ideas like that with with open hands. I think it's been great for our family. My that daughter who was going into kindergarten is going into high school this year and she'll be going to high school outside of the home. So we've decided it's not, you know, the perfect long-term solution for her for forever. So, you know, still thinking about it again with with open hands, but that was a very strongly held belief that I made a total 180 on with regards to our family. Yeah, that's a big 180. What came of the socialization solution? Yeah, so the way my wife put it is everyone gets socialized. It's just a question of who you want socializing them. And so there's kids are going to, they're going to pick up on their sponges, right? They're going to pick up on social cues, whatever environment you put them in. So are they going to u- learn their social cues from adults or are they going to use their social, learn their social cues from kids? And I think we've seen over the years, most people are just fine, right? They're going to be fine. They're going to be functioning adults. So I'm not saying this is like the be all end all. And again, I'm not, I didn't engage in this topic to get preachy about it uh, because I'm, I have no intention to preach about it. For our kids, being socialized by adults is great. It just makes them very different at parties. They will have, they're very comfortable having conversations with adults on adult topics because that's how they've been socialized. And they're a little more awkward with kids. And that's a trade-off that we're that we're happy to make. I think you would say the reverse from kids who have gone to larger schools, right? So it's as with everything, it's a trade-off, and that's what we found on the socialization front. That's great. What's the best business you've ever seen? The best business I've ever seen is electronic newsletters. <laughs> so it's anytime you can be in the business of selling ones and zeros, you should you should absolutely do it. And I think for the most part, especially with all the low code, no code tooling that's out there now that you know I didn't have access to when I got into that business 17, 18 years ago, it's if you're passionate about a subject and you're a half decent writer, it's an amazing career opportunity because you can basically do it as a solo operation. And you know, with the platforms out there that that enable it now, I think it's I think it's a great opportunity for folks, especially for people who have already identified that like people management isn't really their thing. And they're not into, you know, having big strategy sessions and they're not super into, you know, putting together quarterly reports and and that sort of thing. Like it really can be a very self-contained career for people and for folks that do it right, an extremely lucrative one. So I think the 
the solo content producer, given all the infrastructure that's out there, is the best business model out there. And I think we've seen from businesses, you know, I used to work at The Motley Fool. They're also extremely scalable businesses as well. So I think, you know, whatever size business you aspire to, uh, to work in, you've got your choice in terms of the electronic newsletters or content provider, that, that sort of thing. I'm more bearish on the whole influencer thing. So that's not, that's not really what I'm, what I'm talking about. I think they're having their moment right now. But for folks that are adding substance to the conversation and are especially wise about a particular subject matter, I think the market for that is going to grow for a very long time. Who are some of the newsletter writers from a business perspective that you really admire or study a lot and just try to learn from? So I had the privilege of working with Morgan back at Morgan Housel back at the at the Motley Fool. And he's one that, that I think is great. And, you know, his his business is largely content, right? And I've learned a tremendous amount from him and his brevity to go back to the the conversation that that kicked us off today. He is able to pack so much into just a few short phrases. And I admire him tremendously for that and have learned a ton from him probably can't tell from my from my tweets, but I have learned a lot from him. Ben Thompson is a big one. And I think, you know, he's another, I think, generational talent in terms of his ability to take extremely complex and interwoven topics on how the internet works, how the big social companies operate, and still it down to, you know, someone like me can understand them. I think that's extremely valuable. And I think he's built a really big audience and again, this is the distinction that I draw between influencers and people who have like real substantive value to add to the to the conversation. And I think that's the the great thing about riches and niches, right? Is Ben Ben Thompson has found his his niche just happens to be very, 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 very wide because he's able to go so deep on things. So there will be folks like Ben Thompson who have very large audiences. There are going to be people who have very small audiences as well. But I think the interesting dynamic, and I think part of the reason that we don't have more folks doing this right now is content producers and really thoughtful writers don't really understand how much pricing power they have when they go extremely niche Like I think they dramatically underestimate the amount that someone is willing to pay for very niche content. And I think we would have more folks out there if they realized, oh my gosh, like I can write the things that I want to write about and the things that I'm passionate about. And my audience is only ever going to be like the 1200 people who still operate model train stores in the Midwest, but they're willing to pay like a few hundred dollars a month to get my newsletter because I'm giving them the latest on what's going on on auctions on model trains. This is completely made up, by the way. But that's just just an example of, I think, I think we're just starting to explore what that ecosystem looks at. I think there are thousands of geniuses out there in very niche parts of the market who just haven't thought about the fact that, well, no one would read my newsletter. That's okay. Like we're, I think we're going to get to a place where the tooling and the marketing, you know, the out of the box marketing is good enough where you can go in and you can write to the same 500 people for the next five years and you can make a fortune. And I'm, I'm, you know, as a fellow content geek, excited to, (laughs) excited to see that happen. 
And I think the third would be would be Matt Levine from Bloomberg. He is hilarious. I think he's a lot like Ben Thompson in his ability to distill things down. I mean, just like mind-bogglingly complex financial topics in kind of an explain it like I'm five type of a format. And there isn't one of those that I read that I don't laugh out loud at, at, at some point. So he's another generational talent. When he decides to hang it up, I think Wall Street and you know, public equities will be dramatically poorer for it. Yeah, he's one of my favorite writers. I love his ability to take, like you said, a complex topic, but also make it really funny. And there's a casual language to the way he writes, where it's like you're at a bar with him and he's just like telling you over a yes. beverage. You know, and there's a lot of like he'll use filler words or some other like random kind of back and forth things that you might say to each other, but you wouldn't write yes. in an email it's very, or it's a very newsletter, conversational. But he'll it's a add very those. conversational style, and yet doesn't lose its heft somehow, which is, yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. Like you don't, not, you don't lose any trust in him as a source for accurate information because of those filler. It's, it almost like yes. amplifies it. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love studying newsletters. This is a fun pastime of mine, speaking back to kind of nerdy hobbies of, yeah. of business owners. <laughs> right. um, but I'd love to keep chatting, but we have to head out, unfortunately. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all things management and hiring and so much more. I'd, I'd love to do it again soon. Yeah, have, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 